The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast of The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking first and foremost about the railroad. Now that President Biden and the Democrats have officially sided with the railroad barons in denying rail workers paid sick days, we're going to be discussing how we got here and what the potential fallout could be. Then we're going to be speaking with journalist and documentary filmmaker Blake Zeff about his brand new documentary called Lone Wolves, which details the history of the student debt crisis and the impact it's had on Americans across the country. This week, our paid subscribers will also get a bonus segment, our interview with journalist and author Joel Stein about his new book called In Defense of Elitism. It's a humorous defense of intellectual elitism and why he argues it's worth preserving. If you want access to Lever Time Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, do us a favor. Share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. And of course, as always, I'm here with producer Frank. Hey, Frank. What's up, David? Uh, I'm feeling honestly a little upset this week uh, over everything that not with you. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but just just with everything that's been happening with um, the railroad workers and this contract that the Biden administration and the Democrats uh, forced upon them through this, you know, this legislative process. Uh, it's a real it's a real bummer. And and it's a stark example of how. You know, the Democratic Party often sides with its donors and the corporate class rather than the workers. And then, you know, people turn around and are like, well, why do, why do people hate the Democrats? And it's like, well, this this right here. So, yeah, this is really this has really been a bee in my bonnet this past week. Yeah, it's been certainly a bummer. I think the Democrats come off as completely tone deaf here. I mean, I saw the incoming House Democratic leader, soon to be minority leader, uh, Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, he tweeted out uh, in light of all this. He tweeted out, quote, there are some in Washington who want to turn back the clock. It's not going to happen. House Democrats will continue to move America forward. And, and, and what's amazing about that is th this is a guy who heads a party that literally just used a 1926 law to help railroad barons break a strike. Like he got in the in the back to the future time machine and went back to the 1920s and dusted off an old law to crush a rail workers strike. I mean, talk about turning back the clock. That's like the most egregious example of turning back the clock, going back to the era uh, of the 1920s and the rail barons uh, to resurrect that, to crush workers. Uh, and I think you're right. I think it, it does underscore uh, that a lot of people feel the Democratic Party will say great things about workers, but when push comes to shove, uh, they will not 
help those workers. And this is, I think, a, a very illustrative example of it. And it's worth noting that some on the right are trying to take advantage of it. I, I read this morning uh, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, who uh, I am not a fan of, a Republican, a very conservative Republican. Uh, he published an, an op-ed in a magazine uh, saying uh, that the Democrats were wrong, saying that workers had the not only the right, they were they were in the right to threaten uh, a strike. So I think uh, the American right, or at least pieces of it, sees an opportunity uh, to potentially intensify uh, support from the working class of this country. Uh, well, it's also easy for them to take the correct moral and ethical position now, now that this deal has been passed, right? You know, I mean, it's it's easy for them to say, oh, well, the Democrats did this terrible thing. Meanwhile, they probably wouldn't actually have supported uh, the the con- like a contract that would have been more beneficial to workers, right? That's right. And I think that's the key is that the Democrats could have done nothing. They could have allowed Mm -hmm. uh, the workers to continue having their battle with management. Instead, they chose to intervene on behalf of the rail barons. I mean, that that's the old the old labor question is always which side are you on? And I think the Democrats made very clear in affirmatively passing legislation to impose this agreement without paid sick days on workers, the Democrats effectively answered that question. Which side are they on? They're on the side of Warren Buffett and the rail barons. There were only eight House Democrats who voted against imposing the deal. And I think that does tell you everything you need to know. It should worth adding, too. Not all of them were self-identified progressives. I mean, and, and I think it's interesting that among those eight, uh, a lot of them do not uh, call themselves or identify themselves as a progressive or the progressive caucus members. I think this scrambled up the politics of the Democratic caucus. And and that's a good segue into our first segment here, which is about how we got here. How did this all happen? How did President Biden and the Democrats choose to side with rail barons in denying workers paid sick leave? And how do those workers not have paid sick leave? So let let me step back and give you a summary of what's been going on. Uh, Like a lot of industries in America, over the last decade, major railroad companies in the United States have been slashing labor costs by imposing draconian scheduling systems on their workforce. In the rail industry, this system is called precision scheduled railroading which effectively allows the rail companies to ship more freight with fewer workers. It's resulted in huge profits for the rail companies uh, and not such great working conditions for the workers who actually do the labor. Over the last six years, the country's major rail companies have lost about 30% of their total workforce. I shouldn't say lost, they've They've reduced their workforce in that way. Pur- yeah, purposely lost Purposely them. lost them in the name of increasing profits. Uh, this trend catalyzed by the implementation of precision scheduled railroading and, of course, then exacerbated by the pandemic. For the past three years, amid claims of deteriorating working conditions, rail workers and their unions have been negotiating for fairer contracts with the railroad companies, which were at a total impasse when the railroad barons refused to cave on one simple demand from the workers, more paid sick leave, and not just more, any paid sick leave. Now, in almost any other country, if the unions and the bosses don't reach a compromise and approve a contract, the workers have the right to go on strike, to withhold their labor. 
But that's not true for railroad workers in the United States, because rail and freight are considered so crucial to the American economy that way back, as I mentioned, in 1926, Congress passed the so-called Railway Labor Act, which gave itself, gave the Congress the power to intervene in railroad union negotiations and impose a contract onto railroad workers, even if they haven't approved that deal. Back in September, the Biden administration used that power. They resurrected that power, dusted off that old law to broker a tentative agreement between the rail unions and the companies, which included only one day. Uh, One personal paid day of leave time. Out of the 12 unions, four voted down the agreement, setting the stage for a potential rail strike, which could certainly negatively impact the U.S. economy. That was until the last week, when Democrats in both the House and the Senate officially sided with the railroad barons and passed legislation to impose the agreement which was then, that legislation was then signed by President Biden. He was the one calling for it. They may have successfully averted a rail strike, but they did so by betraying the railroad workers and forcing them to take a deal they did not approve. And what the railroad workers were asking for, ultimately seven paid sick days, is what President Joe Biden promised to all workers when he campaigned for president in 2020. That's how reasonable the demands were. So to dig into why the paid sick leave issue became such a sticking point, I'm now going to be joined by the journalist Peter Goodman. Peter is a global economics correspondent for The New York Times who has been covering everything happening with the railroad, everything happening with the supply chain. Hey, Peter, thanks for being back on Lever Time. Hey, David, thanks for having me. So we reported at the Lever that it would have cost the railroad companies about $321 million to give uh, their workers about seven paid sick days. Even though the main railroad companies raked in more than $7 billion in profits and paid out over $1.8 billion in dividends, they have been opposing this. And the reason I bring that up is because they obviously have the cash to provide paid sick days to their employees, but they don't want to. And it feels like it's something, uh, it's about something more than just the money. Why are they, why are the rail companies digging in so hard against giving their workers seven paid sick days? Well, there's a couple things to understand. First of all, from the beginning of railroads in our nation, they have been run more as financial assets, uh, ways to separate uh, cash from uh, unwitting, naive uh, investors, and then rewarding the smart investors, usually oneself if you're an executive, through dividends, uh, now in our modern age, share buybacks. It's never been about the service uh, principally. It certainly hasn't been about being kind to workers. It's always been about finding new workers you could press into service at, uh, you know, back in the old days, just horrific, appalling, deadly conditions. I mean, you know, think about the history of this industry where originally it's mostly, uh, Irish Americans who are building the transcontinental railroad. They start agitating 
uh, to not get killed constantly uh, doing this work, uh, to not uh, literally come down with uh, scurvy uh, and other kinds of uh, illnesses. So the railroads go and find Chinese laborers who are even further removed from home, who don't uh, have a sense of legal rights, who don't speak the language, and they they exploit them. And, you know, a lot has happened, obviously, uh, in the century plus since then. But certain basic features are the same, which is you're always looking for a way to marginalize working people as costs, threats to the bottom line. But then in the meantime, we're in a, in, in a moment where uh, there's been a lot of attention to this, uh, what I've come to call the great supply chain uh, disruption, where you know warehouse workers, uh, dock workers, truck drivers uh, have been agitating for a larger piece of the bounty, given that they have, have continued to work through this pandemic, you know, often having to choose between uh, their, their livelihood and, and their lives. Uh, and labor is on the march, and the railroad industry is one that has always been uh, looking out uh, for labor agitation and viewing rail workers as a threat to the bottom line. So it, it is beyond just this this one battle. It's it's about the balance of power between labor and the executive class. As it relates specifically to the railroad companies, there is this issue of so-called precision scheduled railroading at the base, at the core of the rail company's business model. Uh, talk to us about what that is and how that intersects with, with specifically uh, the fight over paid sick days. In other words, why is precision scheduled railroading uh, such an important thing to understand in order to understand why the railroad companies are so opposed to giving their workers more paid sick days? Well, precision schedule railroading, which is this wonderful corporate Argo, you know, cooked up in some uh, consulting shop. Uh, it doesn't actually mean precisely scheduling the railroads. In fact, it means the opposite. It means running the trains whenever you feel like it, uh, whenever's best for the bottom line, uh, which means all the workers just have to deal with the fact that their schedules are more unpredictable than ever. If you're on a maintenance gang and you roam around the country going to wherever you're needed at any given moment, if you're an engineer and you drive the trains, uh, you now are effectively on call all the time. You're constantly being told, sorry that you drove 13 hours from home to get here and you were hoping to go home in four days to go spend a day and a half with your family before you go out to your next job site. Well, now you're spending half a day uh, and that's just how it is. And if you don't like it, we're going to write you up for disciplinary proceedings. Well, that's precision scheduled railroading. It's it's about it is the latest way in which the railroad executives have sought to lavish uh, the bounty on the shareholders. Uh, so how do they do that? Well, they they limit scheduling, they drop less profitable routes and they cut paychecks. And in uh, the three or four years before the pandemic, they laid off the seven largest American railroads, roughly a third uh, of the workforce as a way to free up cash to give to the shareholder via dividends and, and buybacks. And, you know, they're always trying to deliver whatever metric Wall Street feels like buying. Uh, and one of them is so-called operating ratio, which is, you know, the, the percentage of the revenues that go into operating the railroad. So the better you do at dropping the overhead costs, the better you do boosting operating ratio. So they don't want to add more people and yet they want to move freight when it's uh, profitable. And that that puts a lot of pressure 
on workers. It makes it harder for workers to even get unpaid leave to go see a doctor, to be home when a child uh, is sick, when a relative is having surgery, when somebody dies, when somebody's born. It's harder and harder for these guys to get paid uh, unpaid time off. And so this paid sick leave debate just became resonant of the whole deal that railroad workers accept in doing this for a living. It, it became it's both an incredibly important issue and a very symbolic one at the same time. Yeah. And I feel like at the core here that the railroad companies were willing to increase workers pay by a certain amount because that's they don't want to. But that's something they can kind of cut a check for uh, as opposed to. Allowing for more paid sick leave potentially forces the rail companies to reimagine their entire business model. It seems like if they've built their whole business on so-called precision scheduled railroading, which is just, as you said, an, alluded to a kind of a nice corporate term for basically wildly understaffing things. Uh, it seems to me that if, if they have to agree to more paid sick days, that threatens the the larger structure of how they envision how their entire business works. And so they've drawn a line in the sand specifically on that because, hey, listen, we may be able to raise your wages here and there. We may be able to raise your your benefits here and there. But wait a minute. Uh, paid sick days, uh, paid sick days forces us to rethink the entire formula for how we do right. business. Is that a fair way to look at it? I think it is because it, precision schedule railroading is, I think, appropriately likened to just in time manufacturing, which was this uh, notion cooked up by Toyota uh, back at the end of the Second World War, which was a, a sensible idea. Uh, look for ways to do things more efficiently. Don't just make as many cars as possible and sell them, make cars according to the demand. And then consultant consulting companies like McKinsey got involved and turned it into this kind of crude imperative to just slash inventory uh, because that was a way to boost the metric uh, that they were looking for, which was return on assets. You know, if you've got less inventory on your books, then you've got a great, you've got fewer assets to divide into your revenue. Therefore, your return on assets goes up. And precision scheduled railroading is doing something uh, similar. And it, it requires that you can immediately deploy people however you like, because you've cut people to the absolute minimum so that you're squeezing, you know, the greatest operating ratio out of your, your railroad as you can. It, you know, and it's already, I mean, even before, uh, we had this strike threat and these negotiations. This was already a source of just incredible anger, resentment, anxiety amongst the workforce. I talked to a guy in Tennessee who worked for Norfolk Southern, which is one of the seven largest railroads. And he, this is a guy who quit actually in, in disgust this past summer when he heard his employer talk about record revenues as they're saying they can't afford paid sick leave. He related a story to me where his son was born with a heart defect. Uh, last year needed surgery as he eight months old. He couldn't get unpaid leave to stay home to be with his son without uh, pressure. He said his supervisor said, you really put me in a tough spot. I don't have enough people. I really need you here. I mean, that's the level at which we've we've pushed things. So I do think, you know, you can go even broader with that. I I, I think the railroads simply don't want to give up control. 
And, and, and if you, if you pay out paid sick leave, it's not just the dollars. It's a recognition that, oh, these are human beings. This is not machinery. These aren't robots. These are people. They have families. People get sick. They die. They get tired. Stuff happens. We, we don't want to deal with that. We, we want a closed loop where we can deploy people as easily as we can deploy locomotives and any threat to that system is a threat to a very successful bottom line. Just to echo your point, the recent federal report about this uh, dispute noted specifically, quote, this is a quote from the federal report. The rail companies maintain that capital investment and risk are the reasons for their profits, not any contributions by labor. Point being is that the rail companies, to your point about the rail companies and control uh, and what they're willing to acknowledge and not acknowledge, they don't want to acknowledge the overall contribution of their workforce. They effectively don't want to acknowledge, uh, much less give up control of uh, their business operations uh, in a way that would acknowledge the th- that their workers are uh, participating in creating uh, that value. Now, I want to ask a macroeconomic question about uh, what happened when it comes to the potential for these workers to strike. Uh, what we saw uh, last week was the Biden administration and the Congress intervening to block a strike and impose the railroad company's agreement without uh, with no more than one day of paid sick days on the workers. And the argument of, for that, uh, to, for doing that, had been we have to do something uh, or it will crush the economy. So the macroeconomic question is, let's say a strike happened a day, a week, two weeks, how crushing would it be to the economy? We'll get to whether they should have intervened or not in a second, but I just just the macroeconomic picture of what would happen if there was a strike. Oh, I think the stakes were very high. I mean, rail moves roughly 40% of all the freight through the United States. Uh, and if you shut down the rail system, that's a lot of stuff that can't move. I mean, there, there were uh, credible reports that we wouldn't have enough uh, chlorine and other chemicals for wastewater treatment plants. Uh, all sorts of plants that make all sorts of things and require on you know it require chemicals to to uh, make paints, industrial solvents. You know they they've been uh, potentially uh, facing shortages as as we've looked at a potential halt to rail and and of course trucking would pick up the the extra slack. Well, trucking doesn't have extra slack because thanks to uh, deregulation uh, started by Jimmy Carter in the late 70s. Trucking has gone from an always tough but, but decent job, a decent way to support a family at a middle class standard, to something that no person would ever do if they had uh, some alternative. So we're, we've got these quote unquote shortages of truck drivers, which really means we've run out of people willing to take the deal uh, that is driving a truck in America in 2022. So, you know, we'd have shortages there too. We'd have cargo rates go up uh, at a time when everybody's worried about inflation. We would potentially have uh, more of it and and more shortages. That threat was very real. Then let's turn to whether or not Congress should have intervened. I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on where you come down on that. I want to ask the question about leverage, about who had bargaining power here. It and, And seems to me the Democrats in Congress, Joe Biden as president, could have chosen to say to the railroad companies, you got two choices. 
we can either uh, impose, the government can impose uh, the agreement with seven paid sick days, seven paid sick days that Joe Biden has, by the way, promised to all workers when he ran for president. You can either have that or the Congress is not going to intervene. And it seems to me that this was a situation where the Democrats had all the leverage because by doing nothing, they could have at least helped the workers or at least forced the railroad companies back to the negotiating table. I guess my question on this is, how much did the railroad companies need Biden and the Congress to intervene versus how much did the workers need the Congress to intervene? It seems to me it was the rail guys, the railroad companies that needed the inter intervention far more than the workers. In other words, the Democrats could have just said, listen, the way we're going to help workers at minimum is just not do anything. Well, I think the best way to answer that question is to go back in time. How did we end up with this system where the Railway Labor Act uh, restricts the ability of workers to strike? Uh, well, you, it goes all the way back to the late 19th century when there was tremendous social unrest uh, targeting the people we now call the robber barons, the monopolists who got uh, outsized uh, shares of, of American rail. Uh, the center of the action in 1877 was in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Railroad was by far the most important industrial rail system. It connected uh, the ports of the East Coast to what was then the frontier, to agricultural lands, to the Midwest, uh, and the beginnings of industry. And when workers said, you know what, we don't like the deal we're getting, we're going on strike, there were violent uh, wildcat actions. The result of this was that the head of the Pennsylvania Railroad managed to persuade the then governor of Pennsylvania to send in militia from the other side of the state in Philadelphia. And they actually opened fire uh, and killed, uh, depending upon uh, who you ask. Certainly scores of people died, many of them just bystanders, including children who were just looking on from a hillside. We got uh, work strike. We got strikes basically across much of, of the industrial part of the country throughout that year, and out of that came what we now call the Railway Labor Act, uh, which is this piece of legislation that says, "Sorry, guys, you you guys are special. Uh, in other industries, if workers don't like the deal, they can do the ultimate. They can withhold their labor till they they're willing to accept the bargain. Not you guys. You guys are so vital, and there's no other way to move freight. So for you to strike, you have to exhaust this convoluted process of." bargaining sessions, declarations of impasse, uh, presidential broker, this presidential emergency board that tries to mediate. And, you know, on it goes. Clearly, this was about minimizing the leverage that labor enjoys uh, and to make it harder for labor to uh, damage the economy uh, by with, withholding uh, its labor. So, yes, uh, there is no question that when Congress intervenes, to impose a settlement, it is doing the bidding of the railroads. And I think that needs to be underscored over and over again, because a lot of the discourse has been, well, uh, look, the Republicans voted against, uh, for instance, the uh, paid sick leave uh, provisions in the ultimate deal. And I, I keep going back to the idea that 
It's the Democratic Congress. It's not to, by the way, absolve the Republicans, but it is the Democratic Congress that is writing the legislation and scheduling the votes on a bill uh, to impose an agreement with only one paid sick days, uh, an inadequate agreement, to say the least. And that is what the railroad companies needed. That is not what the workers needed. And so when you hear people blaming the Republicans, I'm I'm like, look, the Republicans aren't the good guys here, but but the Democrats. Democrats used their power to intervene on behalf of the rail uh, railroad companies, and they did not have to do that. If they would have stayed out, that would have at least boosted the power uh, of the workers. So I guess the final question then is, now that this agreement has been imposed through the force of law uh, by the Democratic Congress and the Democratic president, what options are left to the railroad unions, the railroad workers, is there a likelihood of wildcat strikes or does this just does this just go away now? Just these workers who are so vital to the economy, they just don't get more than one day of paid sick leave? I don't think it goes away. I mean, I think out of the pandemic, uh, if we didn't know it already, we've had a lot of experiences where we've seen that normalcy in our economy depends upon huge numbers of people working in conditions that most of us would not accept for ourselves or our families. Uh, conditions where uh, you do have to choose between your paycheck and your health. Uh, you don't get a say uh, over uh, where you work and when or how much protection you've got. You're just deemed essential and, and off you go. You accept the bargain uh, that's on the table for you. And, and there has been this awakening. Now, it's hard to say where this goes and how much staying power it's got, but clearly the labor movement writ large has momentum that it didn't have before the pandemic and the politics have changed. Uh, one imagines that uh, this rail strike will continue a conversation about paid sick leave at the federal level because the U.S. is an outlier among all wealthy nations. I mean, if you go tell your European or Australian friends <laughs> that, you know, you live in a country that doesn't have any paid sick leave at all, like, it's like explaining, you know, the gun stuff. Like, they, they just can't believe it, right? They, they can't process it. So, presumably, there will be some sort of push, but it's also true that there are a lot of powerful corporate interests that uh, very diligently give to both sides of the aisle uh, that don't, uh, same as it ever was, don't want to take money away from the shareholder to give it to workers. And that that basic balance is is what we're always talking about. Peter Goodman is a global economics correspondent for The New York Times. He's also the author of the must-read book. I really mean it, a must-read book called Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. You can find him on Twitter at Peter S. Goodman. Peter, thanks as always. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our interview with Blake Zeff about his new documentary about the student debt crisis. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our next interview today, we're going to be talking with the journalist and filmmaker Blake Zeff about his new documentary called Lone Wolves, which details the history of America's student debt crisis. Lone Wolves is a funny and empathetic look at how student debt has impacted Americans across the country. It also features interviews with some of the politicians who were involved, and it investigates how an obscure law was passed, which ignited the whole crisis. The Lever's Julia Rock saw the film and sat down with Blake to discuss it. Lone Wolves premieres on MSNBC this Sunday, December 11th at 10 p.m. Eastern, and it'll be available to stream on Peacock on December 12th. 
Hey, Blake, how's it going? It's great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Your new documentary on the student loan crisis, Lone Wolves, features a whodunit plot in search of a single man. What sparked the search and how is it related to the student loan crisis? First of all, thanks for having me. Really excited to be part of this. I've been following your work on this and um, you really have been um, ahead of the game on this in pretty much every way. So it's, it's a thrill to talk to you about it. So one of the, the areas we talk about in the movie is the issue of bankruptcy. And I know it's going to sound boring to people, but I promise you the movie is, is funny and it moves fast. And the issue with bankruptcy is a little different than what people would think. Um, student debt is one of the only debts you basically can't get rid of through bankruptcy. You know, if you and I go to Vegas tonight and blow $10 million gambling, we could actually get rid of that through bankruptcy. Or if we just engage in like excessive over shopping, you can do that too. But student loans, you cannot. And that's important for two reasons. One is obviously some people might actually want to get rid of their debts through bankruptcy, but a lot of people won't. And that's okay. The bigger issue is that without the threat of bankruptcy, Lenders know that they can just charge, they can just give out money to anyone, whether you can afford it or not. They'll give out tons of money to anyone because it, you know, repayment is guaranteed. And the colleges know that too. So the colleges will just keep jacking their prices higher and higher and higher. So this bankruptcy thing, which sounds like an obscure little thing, is actually in, in some ways responsible for the crazy college prices that we see. And the fact that college lenders are just giving out money to anyone, it reminds me a little bit of the housing crisis when they were just giving away mortgages to everyone, whether they could afford them or not. So anyway, that's the background to this whodunit. Um, the whodunit itself was, I thought it was really weird and crazy that there was an exception in the bankruptcy policies just for people with student loans. And I knew there had to be a story there because I used to work in Capitol Hill and I knew, I smelled a rat. Like I knew someone put that in there and it might be nefarious and let's figure out like how that got there. So originally I was just going to reach out to the politician that put it in there. It was part of the 1998 Higher Education Act. And I figured maybe they changed their mind. Maybe they didn't realize how bad things would be. But when things got really interesting was that no one put their name to it. No one copped to it. No one would admit that they were the one behind it. And I knew from working on Capitol Hill, the politicians usually aren't shy. So the fact that no one would admit that they were behind it, like raised my shackles. I was like, oh, this is a story. And so that really became the whodunit. I was trying to track down who in the world was behind this, why they were hiding, whether they change their mind and would they be willing to, you know, to, to reverse this. And that really became ultimately a whodunit and a confrontation in the movie. You know, I should have said I got to see the documentary on Monday and it is fun. It is funny. I had a great time. I've thought a lot about student debt and bankruptcy, but I went with some friends who had, you know, no background in the issue and, and they had a great time. So it's it's no way a boring uh, documentary. And, and you know, on that note, one one sort of remarkable aspect to me was that you have all these sort of fun, interesting, playful interviews with with politicians of both parties where you're trying to figure out, like, do, are they going to defend this, that, that you can't get rid of student debt through bankruptcy? And, and, and you found that basically nobody would. Why then is it still the case that student debt is treated differently from all other types of debt in bankruptcy? It's crazy. I mean, without giving away too much, Senator Dick Durbin has a bill that would overturn this. And we reverse this. And it's bipartisan now, actually. He's got uh, John Cornyn and Josh Hawley, Republicans, co-sponsoring it. And so you think to yourself, this should be easy. <laughs> we, you know, it's bipartisan. But one thing I learned from working in the Senate and that people watching this are really going to learn is that 
Remember like when we were taught how a bill becomes a law in school, like Schoolhouse Rock? That is not real. The actual <laughs> process can be a lot more complicated and crazy. And so this movie, while it's about student debt on the surface, is really about our democracy. I really feel that way. It really shows how crazy the lawmaking process is, how crazy it is to try to get a little thing fixed, all these roadblocks and obstacles. You know, we talked to Durbin. He's like, well, I got to bring this to my committee, but I don't know if it would pass. And if it did, then I got a big Schumer to bring it to the floor. And what you find watching the movie, and you saw it, Julius, you know, is that I kind of find found that Senator Schumer and Senator Durbin, they're the number one and two senators in the country. They're from the same party. They believe in a lot of the same things. Yet, they didn't always know what the other one was up to. And so in some cases, I'm informing, you, you saw it. I mean, in some cases, I'm informing Schumer about Durbin's bill. Then I'm informing Durbin that, she, oh, no, Schumer actually supports this now. You should move forward with it. It's really fascinating. And I, I really encourage people to, to, to watch this because I think you're going to learn about more than student debt, but actually how our system of government really works. That gets me to another point, which is that, you know, you, of course, as, as you mentioned earlier, have experience as, you know, an aide to to top Democrats. And as you were just speaking about and comes through in the documentary again, you know, without spoiling it, is that this problem isn't just, you know, one that Republicans created. Uh, the Democrats have had, you know, their their own hand in in creating this problem, um, allowing it to continue. I'm, I'm sort of wondering what you make of that, again, as someone who has, you know, worked for Democrats and now is sort of watching to see if this bill that Senator Durbin has to fix it goes anywhere. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. This is not like partisan hackery, this movie. If you're looking for something that's just like rah-rah Democrats, um, <laughs> this is not your movie. And I don't think, uh, you know, that your audience is looking for that <laughs> anyway. But um, there's plenty of blame to go around. As you said, you know, like, like David, you know, I, we both, you know, work for Democrats, but we're willing to criticize, not even, crit we're just willing to be honest about what's really happening, whether it's Democrats doing the right thing or the wrong thing. I'll give the credit or the blame to anyone. We have some Republicans in the film who are really good on this issue. There's a guy named Wayne Johnson who should totally be famous in America, but he isn't. And I can't believe that no one knows him, but he's in the movie. Wayne Johnson, he ran the federal student aid program under Donald Trump. He's Donald Trump's, he like worked hand in hand with Betsy DeVos. There's like Donald Trump's appointee. He quit after like a couple of months on the job because he was like, this system sucks. This makes no sense. I can't believe what a disaster this is. So he quits. And then what does he do? He announces a plan to cancel student debt. His plan would cancel more student debt than Elizabeth Warren's. And this is a Republican <laughs> Trump appointee, okay? So like we highlight him on the one hand. We also have, I don't want to give away too much, but the, you know, the, the Clinton administration definitely gets scrutinized and the role that they played, um, especially around this 1998 Higher Education Act when a lot of the provisions uh, around student debt were kind of made. So again, don't want to give away too much. Um, it's certainly not the case that this is rah-rah Republicans either. Don't get me wrong there. It's just you've got, you've got heroes and goats on both sides, I guess is what I would say. And so on that point, you know, the Biden administration made an announcement yesterday. We messaged about it a little bit about, you know, how its Justice Department is going to be treating student loan borrowers who are attempting to have their debt eliminated through bankruptcy. And, you know, again, as you said, there's sort of a bill to fix this. Uh, this announcement certainly wouldn't fix the problem. But what did you make of the announcement? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think it's a great sign Anytime, you know, look, Joe Biden is not someone who is, you know, leading uh, a, a left wing revolt. Right. So when he does stuff, that means it's sort of like a, it's like a weather vane. Right. It's a bra. It, it, it tells you where the conversation is shifting. Right. He's just reflecting where, uh, you know, public opinion is shifting. So that to me tells me that the conversation is moving in a good direction. However, 
let's be honest about what this is. Anytime you can get legislation to fix something, that's better than just, you know, an executive action. Reason being, you know, let's say Biden was amazing on this issue. I'm not saying that, but let's say he was. He could be out of office in two years. And then you might have a, you know, a different Republican or maybe a Democratic president who doesn't believe in this anymore. And then they don't implement it the way you want. So then it's just a short-lived fix. So that's point one. And that's why I think Durbin's bill would be better. But part two is basically, if you want to declare bankruptcy on your student loans, you there's a very small little window that says you can if you can demonstrate something called undue hardship. The problem is that judges for years have basically ruled undue hardship to basically mean you have to be dying of cancer or something like that. We've got a bankruptcy lawyer in the film who kind of explains it. And so what Durbin, oh, sorry, what Biden's announcement seems to be suggesting is they're going to make it so that the undue hardship provision still stands, but it might be a little easier to meet it. And they're going to give a list of, you know, kind of standards, but that's still a very subjective thing. And whenever you have subjective standards, you're kind of, you know, prisoner to the, to the whims and the decisions of, of individuals. And so now it might not be judges making those decisions. It might be bureaucrats in the Department of Education or the Department of Justice, but you're still relying on that. You know what I mean? And so what, what Durbin's bill would do is remove that undue heart, would, would really make it a much cleaner fix. I'm not putting it down this thing. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I don't want people to be celebrating and thinking, oh, we don't have to worry about this anymore. I appreciate that. Well, and, and you know, on the topic of Biden and sort of the challenges of doing things by executive action, right now, Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 worth of student debt for federal borrowers is being held up by a court. Do you think his plan, you know, that debt cancellation plan is going to succeed and sort of what happens next to the student loan program? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting asked this question a lot, as you can imagine, and I wish I could be, you know, more bullish. People seem to think, oh, if it goes to the Supreme Court, then it'll be fine. I'm like, have you looked at the Supreme Court? I mean, Biden uh, on uh, Thursday, November 17th, announced that he wanted to uh, take this to the Supreme Court. That could be a scary proposition. So we just don't know which way they'll go on it. Now, there are a lot of people who are saying that Biden really... Um, has other powers beyond the way in which he did it that he could refer not to the HEROES Act, but he could use a different uh, legal theory stemming from the Higher Education Act of 1965, and that that might be a better way if he wants to reintroduce a new cancellation program. He could do that. But let's just see how this court case goes first. I guess I guess my answer would be, we just don't know. And but but if but if it does fail, like I'm saying, there's another avenue he can go where he invokes. Um, different powers that he hasn't used in this case. I just want to take a step back, though, and say that $10,000 of cancellation for people who have $150,000 in debt, you almost don't even care. It just feels like a rounding error. And I know that there are plenty of people who only have $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, and that this is going to be really meaningful for them. And I don't want to poo-poo that. I think that that's great. But there's a lot of people for whom ten or even $20,000 is just a drop in the bucket. So my hope is that even if this does go through and pass, that people don't suddenly think, oh, Cancellation's done. It's great. There's nothing left to do. There's still a lot more debt out there. Well, and this is something, you know, that comes up a lot in your documentary. You have a very personal connection to the student debt crisis, and you also interviewed a number of people who are sort of being crushed by just mountains of student debt. What What is the human impact of this problem? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I feel like we're having this conversation about student student loans in this country, but no one ever talks about the actual effect. It's like macro numbers and charts. And you have these economists who say, this is what it is for the economy. It's like, you know, we talked to a teacher who, just to take a step back, graduate school debt is really a huge problem. 
you know, like a, a huge majority of the debt, a lot of it is coming from people who go to grad school. And I think there's like this thought out there from economists and others that are like, if you want, if you have a graduate degree, you're either rich or you will be soon. And it's like teachers and nurses. Okay. Do you think that they're rich? They have to get graduate degrees. You know, most, a lot of places you have to get a master's to be a teacher. So we talked to one guy who's a teacher who that was his dream. He loves being a teacher. He's a really popular teacher. He's beloved. He's got $150,000 in student debt. It started off as $35,000. He couldn't keep up with the payments because some teaching jobs don't really pay that much. And the more you fall behind, you'll have what's called compounding interest, where the interest on your loans just jumps and jumps and jumps because they'll put interest on the interest that you haven't paid. And so you have this teacher who's doing the right thing, doing what he's supposed to do. He can't provide for his family. And he talks about it in the film. He contemplated suicide. And he's in, he pulls over on the side of the highway, goes to the like parking lot of a cheap motel, and he reaches his rock bottom. He calls his wife and she ultimately talks him down from doing it, thank God. But just when you see it, when you see kind of the human effect on people, it really just puts it in a whole different category. And I just want to say one other thing on this, which is a lot of people think, oh, well, te- lawyers and doctors, okay, well, they make a lot of money. Like, I'm not going to cry for them. Well, not everyone goes to law school to defend oil companies, you know? Some people actually want to, like, be in civil rights law or immigration law or public defenders, right? Like, there are a lot of jobs in these fields that are not paying a lot. And so we have this woman, Vivian, who grew up poor in New York City, and her mom died of cancer. She speaks Spanish. She wants to work at what she calls a low-resource clinic which is she'd be the doctor and provide medical care for people who don't speak English and, you know, or maybe don't have a lot of money, but she has $250,000 in student debt. So she can't afford to do that. And so there's a cost of society also that we're missing, right? When people who want to do be of service can't because they can't even afford to do it. It's crazy. I mean, your conversation with her in the movie really stuck with me because on the one hand, she has sort of pursued this dream that, you know, the government has asked her to pursue of, you know, achieving a higher education, going to school so that she can make the world a better place. And then once she's in the position of having worked so hard and fought to achieve that dream, it's the same government that is making it nearly impossible for her to come back and, you know, contribute to society in the way that she wants to, but also that she was asked to do by, you know, her country. It's funny you mention that because I was thinking about this exact point because this wasn't in the film, but um, my conversations with her were before the pandemic. Then after that, she was working at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, which was like the epicenter of COVID. And so she was like one of the people that everyone was saying was like a hero, uh, working these endless shifts. She's an OBGYN, but it was really all hands on deck. It wasn't just like epidemiologists, as you will recall, who were with COVID. It was like everyone. And so it's even more than you said. Like she also was like, serving the country, saving people from COVID and really trying, being on the front lines of this. And at the same time, she's paying tons of money to the government for these student loans, a very government that she's kind of helping that's asking her to kind of save people's lives. So it really got, um, you know, on many layers, what you're saying is true. I'm curious, you have a, a long background working in politics, working as a journalist. And yet, you know, I find every time I report a story or look into a new issue, there are tons of surprises. I'm wondering what surprised you the most reporting this documentary? That's a great question. I mean, I think the film is full of surprises. It really is at every turn. And you kind of see the surprises as I'm learning them. You know, it's not like one of those documentaries where like I'm all knowing and telling the audience this is what you need to know. You're seeing me discover just craziness at every turn. I mean, I don't want to give away the the resolution to the whodunit, but I'll just say that the genesis of this bankruptcy 
provision that says that student debt's like one of the only debts you can't get rid of through bankruptcy. The person behind it is someone I had never heard of before. And I'd worked in Capitol Hill and I'd been fought, as you said, I was like, I worked in politics for like a decade, worked in journalism for about a decade. And I'd never heard of this person. I don't want to give away much more than that other than to say what they're doing now shocked me, um, who they are shocked me. And I came in with a really specific plan to try to persuade this person to see how things have changed. I really had an open mind. I was hoping that person would have an open mind. And the way in which the conversation goes, the confrontation, whatever you want to call it, really stunned me. And especially his final his final line um, that he says. So I'm, I'm not like trying to be too coy here. Um, I do hope people will watch it, but I just don't want to kind of like spoil it too much for people who are planning to see it. <laughs> I would have watched the whole documentary just to watch that one interview or confrontation alone. It it, it was just mind blowing. Um, everybody listening to this podcast should should go watch the documentary. I had a really fun time. I, I learned, you know, a bunch about about student debt, but also about I think the point you made is is right about how our democracy works. So, yeah, thank you so much for for joining me to talk about it. Thank you. And if I can just say one thing, Julia, your reporting is in the movie at a very Julia's reporting. <laughs> it was called The Daily Poster at the time, a very key moment in the film. And I'm not just saying this. I was so glad that I caught your story because I got it in like. You know, I'm a subscriber and I, full disclosure, and I got an email, I think it was on a Saturday. And, you know, I don't always read, you know, like on Saturdays, but like I read and like, I don't know what it was. It was part of like a newsletter and I'm reading down. And I'm like, oh my God, this is huge. So part of like one of the breaks in the story in this movie comes from reporting you did in a kind of an obscure little thing. So I just wanted to note that for people that are fans of yours, that for people who are listening, this is going to be on MSNBC on December 11th which is a Sunday night at 10 p.m. I know not everyone has cable or likes cable or whatever. So the other option is Peacock. If you happen to have that, it'll be in their library starting December 12th. So hopefully one of those two ways. I'm also screening it around the country at various places. So if you go to my website, blakezeff.com, you can see the, the screening schedule as well. So like Julia, you can kind of see it in a theater and have that experience as well. And thanks so much for having me on this podcast. It's been really fun. Yes, thank you so much for joining me. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium get to hear our bonus segment, our interview with journalist and author Joel Stein about his new book called In Defense of Elitism. The whole notion of calling people on the other side bad or evil is so mistaken. Like you can have truly bad philosophical and political ideas and still be a kind of wonderful person. Like the this is a pretty high intellectual game to play of figuring out what your politics should be. And please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting, please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.